Welcome to Books, Stories, People, with me, Nancy Richards. You would imagine that a distinguished professor of psychology and an academic would be way too busy a person to be writing books. But you would be wrong, because Professor Ashraf Kaji has recently published his second novel. It's called By the Fading Light, published by Jakarna. It's a story of three friends growing up in Salt River in the very turbulent times of the 60s post the Sharpeville Massacre. It's his second novel. The first, Khalil's Journey, won several awards, in fact. But having grown up himself in District 6, at least until the age of nine, and having spent a great deal of time in Salt River visiting relatives, one would necessarily assume that if the book is not autobiographical, it's most certainly informed by personal experience. Or is it? Yes and no, Nancy. Um, the journey from personal experience to the page is where the creativity takes place. And um, the the stories from one's personal experience, myself, um, people around me, people whom I know, students, patients, friends, colleagues, uh, their stories kind of jumble up in my mind and then ultimately make their way into a story, a novel, a book. Um, and the writing process is where all of that comes together, really. So if, if you're asking whether any of these events took place in real life, the answer is some of them may have and others didn't. Some of them are purely a figment of my imagination. But many of these stories are, are true in a broader sense. Many of these things speak to overarching truths and uh, overarching realities that people experience, the troubles, the conflicts, the challenges that human beings encounter over the course of their lives are to some extent captured in, in this book. So it's real and it's not real. Yes, as you describe it, it sounds like a sort of an unpacking of all sorts of things. But, you know, that was a wonderful image you painted there or created there by saying, you know, all the things that people tell you, all the things that through which you've lived, friends, family, patients, the stuff that you read, I imagine, gets this great big cacophony in the head. And as a psychologist, I imagine that you're quite uh, interested in how people process things in their mind. Do you unpick things at the end of a day, at the end of a working day, do you sit and unpack, unpick, process all that you've heard? How does that work? So my day job is that of a scholar and researcher. So I'm sitting at a computer all day yeah. with databases and writing papers and you know, it's, it's, it's academic. Kind of academic, yeah. Um, uh, during the times when I was a clinician, uh, uh, in previous years, there was certainly an element of needing to decompress and needing to uh, process what had taken place over the course of the day, listening to people's stories, the difficulties, the troubles, the challenges that um, uh, many patients experience and, and trying to be helpful in that process. There is an element of uh, needing to decompress and take stock. So, so yes, by, by all means. And I think a lot of clinicians also experience that and the need to process with, with other colleagues, with other professionals to have uh, peer supervision and peer support. I think for, for a lot of clinicians, that is quite an important thing. Let's move away from the academic aspect and let's go to the emotional and the personal. And the book, inevitably, I'm just putting this together, 
it, it's definitely to do with your own background. I mean, we're looking at the 60s, so I imagine that you would have been, you know, a contemporary to the young chaps in the book. Did you, did you have an idea about what you wanted to do? Did you want to recreate this time and this place in the Salt River in your book? Was that the purpose? I was born in 1965 and I kind of uh, grew up in the 70s. So I needed to reconjure the, the 60s in my head on the basis of what I knew and what I learned and what I read. And I was always really interested in music from the 1950s and 60s and the culture and um, all the, the, the events that took place in the 60s. Um, and so I, I wanted to recapture some of that. Uh, and 1960 was a very interesting year in terms of our political history in this country. I mean, in the book, Sharple, that just happened. And so the um, passive resistance movement to apartheid was over. That was gone. And uh, it was going to be a couple of years before the political prisoners uh, 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 would, would have the Rivonia trial and go to jail, etc. So it was essentially, uh, for me at least, a, a loss of political innocence of, of South Africa because now the armed struggle would begin in earnest and, and, and matters took a very, very serious turn when 67 people got killed at Sharpville. So that loss of political innocence I, I wanted to capture and also parallel it with the loss of of personal innocence of these young characters, the protagonists in the story. Yes, music is huge in the book. Let's let's go the music route first and foremost, because uh, you know you quote whole sort of. Um, I'm thinking, oh Carol, I am but a fool, and the blue lights singing on the corner with all these different bits of music. Did you have to sort of do research, or were these bits of music that you grow up grew up with yourself? I did grow up with uh, a lot of that music. Um, my parents and my uncles and aunts used to listen to uh, that music when I was growing up, and I took a liking to it and I don't know I do a lot of reading about popular music in the 1950s and 60s and uh, play a lot of that music myself as well even today so it is an abiding interest that I've had and I had the privilege to visit uh, Matthew Street in Liverpool where the Beatles came from and where they played and my my other ambition is to go to Graceland <laughs> <laughs> You're full of books. You're full of books waiting to be written, really, aren't you? Many of them around music, I imagine. But, but just coming back to the music for this, you would have had to have it... Were you playing it while you were writing the book? Did you play the music to get you in the zone? I didn't necessarily play it, uh, uh, you know, to, to listen to, but I, a lot of music plays in my head a lot of the mm -hmm. time. And uh, um, whenever something happens, I try to attach it to a song that I know for whatever reason. It's an eccentricity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fertile one and it gives a wonderful sort of cadence to the whole book. Tell us about these three young chaps. It actually opens with the young chap, Amin, who disappears. I'm no spoilers here, so we're not going to say anything more about that. But there are the three young buddies, Aini, Harun and Cassius. Tell us about them. They've all got very different family lives. Yes, they all have different backstories and each chapter explores the back backstory of, of uh, these protagonists. Essentially, uh, you know, this, this time of, of childhood, uh, late childhood, just before adolescence sets in, just before uh, the growth spurts and the mood swings and the acne and the interest in girls, etc. I, I think it's a, it's a fairly sensitive time. It's a special moment in developmental uh, history, uh, you know, of, of, of people. 
and uh, they don't quite understand everything that's going on and everything is really confusing. Uh, but at the same time, they feel that something is not quite right in their families. Something is the matter. And it's not as if their parents are overtly cruel and abusive. It's uh, the case that for a lot of the adults in the story, they are kind kind of trying to come to terms with their own grief and their own challenges and their own trauma. And as a consequence of that, they don't necessarily pay attention to the emotional needs of these young boys uh, that that uh, drive the story. And I, I wanted to capture that, the fact that there's a mismatch between the needs of, uh, uh, the emotional needs of these protagonists and what they were actually getting from the adults around them. Not only their parents, but also the school teachers, the religious leaders and, and, and others in, in their social consolation. The sad reality is that not much has changed from that point of view. I mean, the, the troubles would be very different, but especially in term, in places of poverty, and there's a lot of poverty, a lot of yeah. poverty in many senses here. Poverty almost sort of floats off the page. Do you know what I mean? Was that something that you were quite keen to highlight? Yes, I, I think I wanted to bring into focus the fact that uh, these were all families that were living on the other side of apartheid. Um, and, and that comes with all kinds of consequences, uh, uh, not having the privileges of people who uh, were the beneficiaries of apartheid. But, you know, at the same time, I didn't necessarily want to tell an apartheid story specifically. This was a, really a story about these young people, these young boys, and, and, and their relationships with each other and with others uh, whom they knew. And uh, the characters and how they, they unfolded. Uh, one of the challenges in, in writing a South African story, I think, is uh, uh, you can't get away from the politics of the day. Mm. It is impossible to do that. And so you, one needs to couch the story and locate the story in a political context, but make it a human story. And there are other writers that, that write political books. And this is important. I didn't necessarily want to write a political book about apartheid specifically. I wanted to write a story about these people. Yeah, and the footprint that apartheid had, you know, the, 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 the damage, the stain, if you like, that it's left on these young chaps. On a lighter note, there's also, um, oh, there are many light notes on very dark notes. I, I just wanted to draw attention to the comics. Comics comes up, and I think there was one of the chaps, I can't remember who it is, dresses up as Superman, rather unfortunately, in his mother's bloomers or something. Were you a big comic man when you were a kid? Yes, I grew up on comics, on Spider-Man and Superman and all of those things. And and so uh, it's, it's one of those things that you, you know, in the 70s, I think before there was even TV, there were comics and there were books and there was Enid Blyton and the Hardy Boys and all of those uh, um, magical worlds that books created for, for young children children of, you know, and certainly was the case with myself. Another sort of character, if you like, in the book is Cecil Road Primary, which is just down the road here. Did you attend Cecil Road Primary? I did not. In fact, I'd never set foot uh, uh, on the premises of Cecil Road Primary until a couple of weeks ago when the Salt River Heritage Society invited me to a launch and the launch took place at the school. So it was kind of a wonderful closing the circle because uh, parts of the book take place at the school and uh, they were they were very pleased that the, the 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 school was featured in the book and so that's what they did there's a wonderful sign outside Cecil Road Primary that I think it says enter to learn learn to serve or something like that so it's a very it's a very strong uh, character in the in the book 
But let's talk about you and District 6 and Salt River, because you grew up in District 6 till you were nine. Um, but you used to go to Salt River a lot to visit relatives. Share some of those memories. Yes, well, um, my parents were um, young people and they needed to work. And so my grandparents took care of us quite a bit and we'd spend, you know, several hours there on the weekends uh, especially and uh, I went to the mosque in the Salt River and I attended the uh, madrasa, the religious school that was there. Uh, I knew all the shopkeepers because I went to the shops all the time and I used to go with my grandmother down to the main road. There was OK Bazaars on the main road and there was a clothing shop called Oblowitz and the Palace Cinema which featured in the book, we used to call it a bioscope at the time. And so we'd go to the bioscope and it was like 20 cents to go and see a double feature in 1973 or 74, whatever it was. So um, I, I do have a lot of memories of Salt River. Never lived there myself, never resided there, but spent quite a bit of time there. What's your take on memory? Because memory can be it, it's very, it's a very movable, flexible thing, isn't it? And sometimes one sort of holds onto a memory and the memory becomes the reality. Do, do you work with memory a lot or is it something that you do? trust it implicitly or do you just as a writer do you just let it take over there is a myth about memory that memory works like a tape recorder and clicks on at the moment of birth and records everything that has ever occurred until the present moment that is incorrect that's not how memory works memory is a reconstruction and people remember things on the basis of their mood their present circumstances um, what is going on for them in, 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 in the moment people also remember the way they remembered things before. So it's memories of memories to some extent. So memories are stories, memories are wisps of information, and memory is extremely fallible. The, the actual factual events and how people remember them uh, do not necessarily correspond 100%. But one of the things that I suppose when you're a child and you, you have to do these set things like go to madrasa, go to the mosque, etc., etc., they stay with you forever. You remember, we forget the things that happened yesterday, but those sort of memories are really with you. Do you have fond memories? Because it's interesting that these boys are being exposed to things new. I, I kept thinking, I wonder when they're grown up men, how they, you know, how they will process all that. Yes. Yeah, so at the end of the book, uh, you know, there's a narrator that, that narrates the prologue and the epilogue. And it is a mystery in the book as to who that narrator actually is. But the narrator says that uh, now that we've grown up, we don't really see each other that much. And when we do, we just say hello. And we don't necessarily talk about the old days because the old days aren't necessarily that pleasant to remember. And so, so memory comes with emotion. Memory comes with positive emotion and with negative emotion. And there's, what I was trying to do in, in, in this book also is capture a sense of wistfulness, um, which, uh, you know, people's lives go in certain ways on the basis of uh, certain events that take place. And uh, what a lot of people do is uh, what we call counterfactual thinking. If only this hadn't happened, then my life would have gone in a different direction. And if only that hadn't happened, then things would have been, you know, very different. And I was trying to capture that essence of the past as well. If only this boy hadn't taken the long way home, you know, yes, all of the so. events in the story would, would, not have, would not have taken place. And so uh, if you rerun history and, and do that in your head, you come up with a whole range of different alternatives about how your life might have turned out. It sounds like this book was in your head for quite a long time before it saw the light of day, even the fading light of day. 
How long were you working with it in your head? Well, um, my first book was published, I think, in 2012 or thereabouts. Your award-winning Khalil's Journey. Khalil's Journey, that's right, yes. And uh, I, I did write another book after that, which um, ultimately did not make its way into publication. And then I sat with, with, with some thoughts for a while after that and um, wrote some passages to see how it could make a story. And the first three chapters were were kind of written just to get a sense of who the characters might be. But then with any novel, you need events to happen. You need a plot. And so I had to make up a plot. The plot in, in, in this particular case is not that important. I mean, any series of events could have occurred. What is important um, other characters, I think, for me, and the interpersonal relationships, the, the emotional uh, aspects of the book, I think, are important. Has this book done the job that you wanted it to do? I mean, what did you want it to do? I'm sure people read it um, with very different responses, people who were, who were there, people who knew about it. People, It's a very emotional book. It's quite funny. It's quite sad. There's a lot of pain, but there's all sorts of things going on. What has been the response and has it been what you wanted? Did you want anything particular from it? Well, I wanted to tell a story about childhood and um, the, the, the perspective of the world from, from a child's viewpoint. Uh, I wanted to capture that, but also not necessarily make it a, a book for children, but a book for at least for young adults and 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 perhaps even older adults. And I would like to think that uh, that older adults would would find it interesting. And so far, the the reception has been quite positive. A lot of people have told me that it took them back to their own childhood, which I think is a is a is a nice thing to do. Um, what I wanted to do is was tell a story of wistfulness of. Uh, people's reflections on their lives, uh, thinking about what life could have been like if certain things had happened or hadn't happened, uh, etc. So, so that was one of the things I wanted to do. But I, I didn't necessarily want to be a tell a tearjerker story yeah. and and make you know make it a depressing uh, book to read or a harrowing book. I mean, there were there are certain things that happen in this book that are very difficult and uncomfortable and traumatic even. Um, but you don't want to drag the reader through a harrowing book. And, you know, some people don't like that. And I don't certainly like writing a, a harrowing book. So there are funny moments and there's even slapstick and jokes and uh, uh, trivia, uh, which I think add to some of the levity of the book to, to counterbalance some of the, the sadness. And there is sadness, there is wistfulness, there is tragedy uh, uh, in the book as well. But I would like to imagine that, that the, the reader will come away uh, with a certain uh, sense of, of resonance, uh, being able to relate to some of the stories, some of the characters uh, in the book, at least. Oh, absolutely. And I keep coming back to the blue lights <laughs> because it's such a good name. And they are hanging out on the street corners, singing their, crooning their songs. I suppose just lastly, and this is something that bothers me, um, or at least something that I think about a lot, I think about how children now will be, when they're your age, how they will be writing their memories. And I think, will they be the same sort of memories of this, or will they be very different? The things that children are living through now are almost unspeakable. Um, there will be nostalgia, there will be wistfulness, there will be the pandemic, but there, there's something about the awfulness of what we're living through now. I, I suppose it's all to do with uh, social media, with all sorts of dreadful things. 
What's your take on that? I mean, I don't know if you've got children, but if, if an 11-year-old, you know, in 40 years' time were to be writing such a book, how do you think it would be? Yes, well, that's a really important question, and it's a very good question. Um, we, we are seeing things happen in our society that are just completely outrageous. The social inequality, the poverty, the, the consequences and aftermath of apartheid and colonialism and, and imperialism. I think uh, these are things that we are seeing before our very eyes. I mean, just across the road, there are people, uh, you know, not having enough food. So, um, so this is... Uh, These are social injustices that I think we all need to uh, think about and address in in a very urgent manner. And part of the problem is our political leadership, uh, which has disappointed us in so many different ways. So uh, I would like to think that we can mobilize politically to overcome some of these challenges or many of these challenges. And I think um, the youth, the young people have a responsibility to to address that so that when they are middle-aged, like myself, uh, in their 50s, they can say, well, yeah, this is what we did. And this is what we try to do to be able to effect social change and political change and, and, and try to create economic justice in our society. When I was uh, a young person in the 1980s, for example, it was not possible uh, to be apolitical. You just had to be part of the student protest movements and be part of uh, the political goings on of the day. I mean, 1985 was the state of emergency. So that's what we did because there was no alternative. And, and any young person at the time uh, was politically involved, or most of most of us actually. So now there's a, a new imperative. Uh, apartheid was a very clear thing. It was easy to oppose. What's going on now is a little bit less easy to see and to, to to be able to uh, come up with a cogent response, but the imperative is there. And so uh, when when people uh, who are young today are middle-aged in a few decades' time, they need to be able to reflect on what they did. So the time is now. Yeah. Regretfully, I'm going to remove your politician's hat or your politically conscious hat and put your writer's hat back on. Have you got another one in the in the making? So, uh, or are you going to rework the one that didn't make it, the one that got away? The one that got away is actually quite an interesting story. If, if you have a minute, I'll tell you the story. It's about a political activist who goes into exile in the in the 70s and uh, becomes a guerrilla fighter and then returns uh, during the post-apartheid era and makes his way into government and becomes a corrupt politician. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need to you need to resurrect it immediately. I'm sure it will have great resonance. Yeah, well, that's what I thought, um, and, and it was written especially during the Zuma era. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's sitting on my computer somewhere. but uh, Burning a hole. Burning a <laughs> hole. <laughs> One of the, the, the things I think um, that is neglected in South African history is slavery. And uh, apartheid has just eclipsed everything else. And so this, the stories of slavery have not really been told. There have been one or two writers that have actually written books about slavery. But to a large extent, uh, I think it's a marginalized history. And so I want to try to experiment with telling the story. And, and obviously, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. But telling the story of, 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 of a slave context. Uh, because a lot of us, we don't even know the, the, the history of slavery and the importance of slavery in shaping South African history. And many of us come from families 
who were formerly slaves, both white people and black people in South Africa come from, uh, can claim at some level uh, a slave ancestor. So uh, I think this is one of the neglected areas. I, I do have to say, Nancy, I'm a dabbler rather than a novelist. So when you ask me if I'm writing a book, well, I am putting together text and prose, whether it ultimately makes its way into publication is a matter to be seen. Well, as a dabbler, I think you have a great deal to say. It's been absolutely fascinating and I do look forward to your next books, whatever they may be and however long they take. Ashraf Kaji, thank you very much. The book, once again, is called By the Fading Light and it's published by Jakarta. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy. Mm-hmm.